Good morning. My name is Nate. I serve here as a lead pastor for 24 more hours and uh, thankful to be here. We're going to open up God's Word in just a minute. I want to make mention of Sidney Jodon that Jeannie Nation mentioned just a moment ago. Brian McCoy, Pastor Brian, has been here for eight years. He's been praying, as have many of you, that God would stir in the hearts of some individuals, that God would use them to go to the nations. And so, um, God has answered Pastor Brian's prayer and my prayer and several others, and so Sydney's going to be going to Central Asia. Pray for her. Uh, pray for her parents. I'm sure that's scary and exciting all at the same time, maybe more scary than exciting. And so grateful for the Jodons, for Sydney taking a semester from college. And thankful for Judy Pendleton. Judy's been here for quite some time, and she is a pediatrician. She's our pediatrician, and so she, according to Jeannie, really did open a practice because she wanted to be forthright about her or belief in Jesus. And regardless if you're going to Central Asia or you're a pediatrician, if you're a believer in Christ, your life is to be spent making much of Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Everything else pales in comparison to spend your life making much of Jesus. I want to take just a couple pastoral liberties because my pastoral liberties are coming to a close here in about four hours when I get done with this sermon. And it's this. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I know that um, the transition that, that uh, my family and I shared uh, two weeks ago brought about a flurry of emotions, maybe sadness, gladness, or madness, or a combination of two or three of those. I understand. I really do. And I want to talk to people who are um, guests in the room or regular attenders or members who are thinking, I'm not sure I want to lean into this church. The church doesn't rise and fall with one man. I understand that I'm the guy who preached most of the time, and uh, there, there will be differences in terms of the interim and, and various things that will change undoubtedly, but I, I've made it a priority of mine to get to know leaders in our context, other pastors, um, through churches. I have several good friends here in the Foothills, Awatuki area. And all of the churches in the Foothills, Awatuki area are different by God's design. They need to be different to reach different people. Uh, I also want you to know that this is a good church, and so me leaving doesn't change that, and I don't want to be presumptuous, and I don't think that many of you think that. But at times, in a period of transition, people who are at the threshold of getting engaged, whether giving or serving or attending or being part of the family, they'll say, up, that's it, I'm going to go elsewhere, and you don't need to do that. You need to stay the course of this church. This is a good church that preaches the Bible. Our pastors, your pastors, Brian, Cody, David, and Craig, are not interested only that you come Sunday morning and having some type of wow factor in the gathering. They care about your soul. And according to Colossians 1, verses 17 and 18, um, they want to see men, women, boys, and girls come to know Christ as Savior and King and see them raised up in maturity um, in Christ. So we, this is a good church, so lean in. Get involved in a group, find a place of service, and don't let it be a spiritual lull in your life. Secondly, I want to talk to those who will either serve on the search team or key individuals and members in general. There's a tendency when, in a time of transition to let the pendulum swing the other way, and you think about the next person coming in, and you'll say things knowingly or unknowingly, out loud or in the quietness of your heart. We want to get somebody who has Nate's two strengths, um, but none of Nate's many weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses might be, we want somebody who's going to be here long term. So we're going to, the next guy, we're going to make sure that he is here long term. 
And uh, nobody sets out to come somewhere for three and a half years. This church has loved us well emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, and materially. And so no one set out, certainly we didn't set out to be here for three and a half years. And there's going to be a tendency for you to want to put this next man on the hot seat and ask him questions such as, do you feel called here? Has God opened the heavens and declared that foothills is where you need to be? God doesn't speak that way anymore, so be leery of people who say that. Um, And also you're going to want to know, hey, are you going to be here long term? And he may want to say that, and you may want to hear that, but no one knows what the future holds. And I'm not saying that to negate the emotional turmoil of of a transition, not that it's a, a turmoil for you. I am saying this, find somebody who loves Jesus, who loves his bride, who loves his family, who loves the church, who loves lost people and loves the Bible. And don't put somebody in a box um, just, just trust the elders, Craig, David, Brian, and Cody, who collectively have seven decades of pastoral ministry, whose job, according to the Bible, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, is to watch over your soul. It's a lofty, weighty thing, and oftentimes a search team, whether they're a large church or a small church, really wants all of this person's previous strengths and none of their weaknesses. And what you're looking for is Superman, and he only exists on DC movies. He doesn't exist in real life. So find a man who's flawed, that knows he's flawed, but loves Jesus, all right? There's my last pastoral liberty, all right? Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Um, The work and the power of Jesus. When I was in elementary school, my parents had a 1974 Chevrolet Nova. Anybody know what a Nova looks like? And if you're below the age of 30, you're lying. Okay, Chevrolet Nova, and it was lime green. It had a black top with um, the upholstery that was hanging off of it, right? Some of your cars still have that. The upholstery hanging off had leather seats that had holes in it, and it was hideously ugly, painfully ugly. I went to John F. Kennedy Elementary School in Dumfries, Virginia. My dad was at the Pentagon and my mom would routinely pick me up in the 1974 Chevrolet Nova. And on this particular Friday, my friend Jason Davis was staying the night with us, and I got to the car first, angry at my mom, who had the audacity to continue to pick me up in the Nova and not the 1989 Dodge minivan. In my perspective, the latter would have been much better than the Nova. So I got down, hunkered down in the back seat so nobody would see me in the 1974 lime green black top Chevrolet Nova. And my friend Jason came to the car, embarrassed, and got in the back seat and began to cry because he was in a 1974 Chevrolet Nova lime green black top with holes in it. And I shared his pain, and I was, I did not know what these psalms in the book of Psalms were, but I was praying deprecatory psalms, which are psalms that David prays over his enemies. I was praying that upon my mom, who picked me up in a 1974 Chevrolet lime green black top Chevrolet Nova. And I was upset with her that she'd had the audacity to do that. And we were driving down a stretch of road where there were not many cars, and it was a couple miles to our house. And all of a sudden, my mom, knowing that I didn't think much of this Chevrolet Nova, put the gas pedal to the floor, and we took off in a way that I had no idea that this 1974 Chevrolet Nova could do. There's 350 horsepower in that Chevrolet Nova, and I was instantly convicted but also had great emotions of joy and elation because this was an awesome car (laughs) it was awesome 
It didn't look awesome. It was unimpressive. It was ugly, painfully so, but it went fast, and my mom relished in her parental wisdom and my youthful foolishness. Why do I share that with you? I share it in this way for this reason. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is unimpressive. The message of Christianity is, when you look at it and you read about it, unimpressive in one sense. Paul says as such in 1 Corinthians 1, that Jews and Gentiles alike look at the message of the cross and think that it is foolishness. And Paul says it is indeed foolishness, and God's foolishness, the message of Christ, actually overthrows and supersedes man's wisdom. The gospel might be unattractive and unappealing, but it is powerful, isn't it? Powerful. What can take a couple that was in the first service who had an estranged marriage, he had abandoned her and their three boys and claimed to be a believer, when confronted with the gospel, understood he was not a believer, comes to faith in Christ, reconciles with his wife, and now they're married and they have four children. What can do that? The gospel does that. What can take a man whose wife leaves him and he continues to stay the course with steadfastness, with joy and encouragement and involvement in the church and has a joy about him? The gospel does that. What can take a family that's had unbelievably difficult struggles uh, maritally and with their kids and give them hope and a joy in the midst of physical adversity? The gospel does that. What can encourage a hard-hearted junior in high school to stop living for the temptation and the sin and lure of the world and help them understand that their identity is really in Christ and that's what really matters? The gospel does that. The gospel is powerful, so powerful. And I want to talk about the gospel this morning in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 13. Verses 9 through 13 I preached uh, three and a half years ago in view of a call, my first sermon where you voted to affirm me. And this morning, I want to just walk through verses 1 through 9. I'll make mention ever so briefly of 9 through 13, and then I want to close with two principles or implications, and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. Let me read God's Word to us this morning, verses 1 through 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw Their faith, I think that was the faith of his friends and the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, take heart, or in some of your translations it says take courage. Both are interchangeable. Take heart, take courage, my son. Why should he take heart? Why should he be encouraged and have courage? Because your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes, the religious cadre, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming because they understood what Micah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 43 said that it is a divine prerogative for God and God alone. He's the only one that can forgive sins. And who is this man who's forgiving sins or claiming that this person's sins are forgiven? They said this man's blaspheming, verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, Jesus oftentimes demonstrates his omniscience, his all-knowingness, said, why do you think evil in your thoughts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. What I want you to see is the truth that Jesus makes abundantly clear, and that is that we should recognize that sin is every person's deepest problem, as I've mentioned many times before. Sin is every person's deepest problem, and forgiveness is every person's 
deepest need. In this section of verses, as well as in verses 9 through 13, you are introduced to two people. You have a tax collector and you have a paralytic. In that context, it was the two worst kinds of people. The tax collector was considered a sinner. He had no respect for God's law. He was ostracized. He was alienated by people. He was disrespected, criticized, and despised because he sold out his countrymen and countrywomen to make a buck. So he was hated. And then you had the paralytic, who most people in that context thought that he was paralyzed because of some unconfessed sin in his life or uh, some sin that his parents had committed. So they both had problems. This is not something that we're unaccustomed to. We have people in our lives, maybe you, maybe other individuals that you know, and your concentric circle of friends have problems, maybe minor, maybe major. Here's some problems that I was exposed to in the last several weeks of friends of mine, some close friends, some acquaintances. They had parents that had split up after a number of years being together. Mom had cancer. Dad had dementia. A friend's wife just died a couple weeks ago at 41 years old. Miscarriages, enslavement to drugs, which is, I think, a better word than addiction. The word in the Bible is enslavement rather than addiction. Heart attack, depression, and then even some people who've had family members die, which is the great equalizer in all of life. All of these symptoms, these physical ailments, are symptomatic of a greater spiritual problem, right? Because sick people, sooner or later, may get better. But sooner or later, sick people and health people die. And as great as Jesus' authority is to heal people of their muteness or their blindness or their deafness or their demonic possession or their paralysis, the greatest truth, the most astounding, amazing truth that we see in the Bible is Jesus' ability to forgive people of their sins. If you're a believer, you're forgiven. There's, there's no greater joy, no greater reality, no more of a profound reality than to be forgiven of your sins. Jesus looked through the paralysis of this individual and saw a man who was sinful and needed forgiveness. If you were to look at the parallel counts, Luke chapter 5 and Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, they go into more detail about this particular um, exchange. And the plight of the paralytic was so bad that he was relegated to a mat each and every day and he would beg for money. And he's lying on a bed and some friends rally to his support and they are going to take Jesus, take their friend to Jesus because they had heard or seen of him in Capernaum and they intend to expose their friend to Jesus and hopefully Jesus can heal their friend. You probably, if you've been in church any number of years, you've probably heard this story in Mark 2, Luke 5, or Matthew chapter 9. In those Palestinian homes, the roof was made out of straw and sticks, stones, clay, and they would oftentimes be 18 inches thick, 18 inches of almost like concrete after they, it was hardened. And so they see as they go to the house where Jesus is preaching and teaching and ministering to people, they see there is no room for them to actually bring their friend to Jesus. And so they go up top on this Palestinian house and they dig through the roof and they lower their friend through the roof, which must have been a pretty amazing spectacle. 
And Jesus says in verse 2, take heart or take courage. Your sins are forgiven. One commentator gave a really helpful description of the word courage that I think is really powerful. There's two words for the word courage. You have the word tharseo. You don't have to remember that. Tharseo and talmeo. What's the difference? Here's what one means. Tharseo means a deep and genuine courage. Talmeo is a courage that refers to an individual gritting their teeth in order to help them endure pain or whistling in the dark to stave off fear. One is genuine, deep, abiding courage. One is gritting your teeth in the midst of pain in order to stave off fear. What's the type of courage that Jesus tells them in Matthew 9, verse 2? It's tharseo, a deep and genuine and abiding courage that eliminates fear. What is the fear that is going on in the paralytic's life? I think uh, the fear that is prominent on his mind is the punishment and the penalty of sin because he's been told for when he, was little, when he was little, you are paralyzed, you have this physical plight because there's some type of sin, unconfessed sin in your life. God's judgment is upon you. So there was fear that rested on this man's mind continually. And Jesus says, don't fear, take courage, take tharseo, uh, let, let what I'm about to tell you eliminate any fear in your life. Because when a person turns from their sins and trust in Christ, when they have faith in Christ, all fears, in terms of ultimate fears, should be eliminated because they are no longer under God's judgment. So take tharseo, take courage, take heart. Why? Well, he tells them, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. The word forgiveness here means the driving away the driving away or doing away with. Take heart, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are removed. They're driven away. Psalm 103 verse 12 says that God cast our sins as far as the east is from the, finish it with me, from the, from the west. Micah 7 verse 19, not as a familiar verse, says when God forgives sins, he cast them in the depths of the sea. And it must have shocked and astounded everyone, particularly the religious cadre, but even more so as we read the scriptures, because when he says your sins, it's a comprehensive term, not just your sins today, your sins in the past, your sins in the present, and your sins in the future, which we will all commit, your sins comprehensively are forgiven. The word forgiven means right now. Your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven right now, which is why you can take tharseo, which is why you can take courage, which is why you can take heart. If you're a Christian, means you're forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future, and you should ever have every confidence and courage that the world cannot give you, but you find in Christ. Despite whatever happens in your life, despite whatever diagnosis and prognosis, despite your marriage, despite your kids, despite your vocation, despite politics, despite what happens in the world, if you are a believer in Christ, you should, according to the scriptures, have tharseo, courage, heart, 
that there is no fear of God's judgment. You do not stand under God's wrath. You should have courage. That a Christian should be a courageous, confident individual because of the reality of the forgiveness of sins found in Christ. But if you're not a Christian, you should not have, you should not have courage. You should not have any confidence. Because the Bible says you stand under God's wrath and God's judgment. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I want you to know that right now where you are, you can have courage. You can have confidence. If you understand that you're a sinner, if you understand that the penalty of your sin was that you would go to spend a real place, a real reality, a real place called hell, and God in his love provides a rescue plan, sending his son Jesus lives a life that you were called to live but did not live and have not lived and goes to a sinner's cross though he was the innocent, not guilty one. And God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus, this substitutionary atonement. He is seeking to repair and make right through his substitution for us on the cross. And God took the sins, your sins, and pours them out on Christ. And three days later, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. And if you will, but humbly, just like a child, Say, I need to believe, I need to trust in you, a genuine faith, understand that you cannot save yourself, and to cry out to Jesus, will you save me? The Bible says right then and there, you can have courage, and you can go from unforgiven to forgiveness, and then you can have courage, unlike anything else. I think it's interesting that Jesus completely bypasses the man's physical needs. Sometimes, I don't know if you're like this, but when I meet, read the scriptures, I think about John 10 and Lazarus. I think about the mute man, the deaf man. I think about here in Matthew chapter 9. Does Jesus really know what's going on? Does he really have our best interest at heart? Is he mindful of the situations at hand? This man doesn't need his sins forgiven. That's not the most important pressing thing. What he needs is to be uh, healed of his paralysis. But Jesus understands our greatest need is to be forgiven because our greatest problem is our sin. The experts, remember the experts, they're disturbed by Jesus' words. They don't speak out loud, but they speak in the quietness of their heart, the privacy of their heart. And we think at times, I think at times, I'm the only one who knows what's going on in the inner working of Nathan Milliken's heart, but it's me and the Lord. The Lord knows what's going on. He's omniscient. Luke 5 and Mark 2 give us details of Jesus' insight into their thoughts. There's a tinge of contempt in their thoughts because the most serious thing in their minds is to blaspheme, is to equate yourself on par with God. And they understood the scriptures well. As I said, Isaiah 43, Micah 7, God has the only prerogative to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the scribes thought he was blaspheming. Not only did they disbelieve that Jesus was the Christ, the King, the Savior of the world, but they also thought it was unjust for someone to simply ask to be forgiven, and that actually happened. They thought you had to work for it. They thought heaven, salvation, was merit-based. I have to be a good person to go to heaven. 
I have to have this great cosmic scale that life is all about. And if my good behavior, my works, my niceness, my morality, if it outweighs my immorality, my non-niceness, my bad behavior, if it outweighs, and God's going to look at me and say, hey, come on in. But God does not grade on a curve. He grades on pass or fail. And the only way any one of us passes is by the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ. People today still think that way. If you were to ask somebody in the church, hey, what does it mean to go to heaven? And are you a Christian? Do you have assurance that your sins are forgiven? If they say something like, I hope so, we'll see. How can anyone know when the Bible actually says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. The word know is the Greek word gnosko, that you may know experientially that you've experienced and tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you've experienced the truth of Christ, the gospel, you can know. The scribes didn't like that. They thought you and I had to work. So if you ever talk to a pastor or a so-called pastor or a Christian or a so-called Christian who says, you better work, you better behave yourself, that's not the gospel, that's not the message of Christianity. Jesus asked them, why are you thinking evil things? Basically, why are you thinking badly of me? And he asked them a question, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to physically heal this man? They asked, he asked them a question. The obvious answer to them is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because they can't see whether or not that is true, but they can see if a paralyzed man is hit. However, what is apparent to them is that both are impossible because Jesus is not God and Jesus cannot heal. But both are possible with God. But if they acknowledge that Jesus can forgive, and if they acknowledge that Jesus can heal, they would be making some concessions and would lose face. So they routinely don't answer Jesus' question. They have bad theology. They have bad theology. They think that this man is paralyzed because he was a sinner. Was he a sinner? Yes, he was. Jesus tells us elsewhere that oftentimes people have physical conditions and go through physical hardships so that God might be glorified. That's a hard truth. It's a, it's a true truth, but a very difficult truth that oftentimes God brings about particular physical ailments and conditions in your life and my life and hardships so that God might be glorified because if he brings it into your life do you know what he also brings he also brings you the grace and a spirit of steadfastness for you to endure it not on your own but with a community of believers with the hope and the promise and the presence of God they wrongly thought that this man was paralyzed because he was a sinner and so he got what was coming to him and we think this way at times maybe you don't say it out loud but you say it in the quietness of your heart their kid rebelled because mom and dad weren't faithful in church. Or their kid rebelled because there's some type of sin in their life. He got cancer because of some unconfessed sin. I told that person to get back in church and God was going to get him. Or you might even think to yourself, I knew I should have written that tithe check for $1,000 and now I got this car problem and wouldn't you know, it cost $1,000. God's going to get his. Bad theology. Bad theology. We want to have good theology and apply it. 
not like the religious cadre of that day. We want to have good theology and apply it. So let me give you some examples of good theology. And you ask yourself, am I appropriating these theological truths in my life? If you believe Jesus is the only way, and he is, there's not multiple ways to heaven. There's not many paths up, up the mountain where you get to God. There's one path. Luke writes in his second volume, Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given to men, women, boys, and girls by which they must be, not might be, but which they must be saved. If you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, do you share the gospel? When is the last time you had a gospel conversation? I, I just, I want to tell you this, and, and I'm with you. So I'm, I'm going to ask these questions, but I don't ask them from some ivory tower looking down. I ask these questions to myself. I, I, I read through my sermon dozens of times, and I think about, I've got to ask them that. I need to ask myself that. When's the last time you had a gospel conversation? If, if it's been months and months and months since you actually opened your mouth to tell people about Jesus, I want you to know you need to go to your prayer closet and confess that to you because it is wrong. It is wrong. And please don't make excuses in your heart where you think, well, I just haven't had an opportunity, and who are you to say? I'm actually telling you what Jesus says. We should be the, we should be the fragrance of Christ, 2 Corinthians 2, to those who are perishing and those being saved. It should not be months where we don't have a gospel conversation. If you believe that God is holy, if you believe that God is holy, and we are according to uh, Leviticus 16, 18, and 1 Peter 1, 16, if we're called to be holy as God is holy, we're called his saints, set apart ones. If you believe God is holy, and he is, do you, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, through the power of the gospel, do you seek to live a holy life? If you think marriage is sacred and an institution that God created in a picture of the good news of Christ, do you hold it in high esteem or is your commitment to your spouse trivial and not that big of a deal? If you think Christ came and died for the church and you're a believer in Christ and yet your commitment to the church is sporadic, that's not, that's not good theology. You're living out bad theology because really we believe what we do. We believe what we do, and there's always a disconnect, and there's always grace, and there's always mercy, and there's always forgiveness, but we want to have good theology and apply it. Jesus tells them, so you know that I have authority, what does he do? He heals the man. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough Jesus doesn't refute their question about his deity, but really invites them to reflect upon what he is about to do. Now, I don't want to work through verses 9 through 13 as I preach those about three and a half years ago, but I want to I give you some principles, some, some implications from the text that I think are germane for us and I hope are relevant. The first is this, as we think about the power and the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the ethic of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. Two, and, and one's rather long, all right? The first is this. Be committed to people and love people like Jesus does and be willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus, right? That's a little long. Let me read it again. Be committed to people and love people like Jesus does and be willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus. To what extent do you go to bring people to Jesus? 
What's your commitment to people look like? We try to, albeit imperfectly, use our home and our influence for Jesus. The gospel, the good news of Christ should order your life. There should be a gospel rhythm. Frequent the same places. Go to the same restaurants. Uh, Know your neighbor's names. Build relationships. We want to be compassionate like Jesus. The word compassion means to be stirred inwardly. You're a burden about someone. Why? Jesus wept for sinners. Paul said he would trade his place in heaven for his countrymen. He said, I'd be willing to go to an everlasting place of torment so that my Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith. You have the men here in Matthew 9 who lowered this man through a roof. They were probably ridiculed. They were probably embarrassed. Is living for Christ, is is talking about Christ a little embarrassing? Yes, Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians. If we are out of our minds, it is for your sake. We care about you. And I care about you so much so that I don't care about your perspective of me. If there really is a real heaven and a real hell, and if Christ really came in the flesh, Jesus really does change everything about our lives. What should you do? You should be friends with sinners. Now, don't take the outgoing lead pastor's advice and say, hey, to your neighbor or uh, co-worker, say, hey, you fit the category of a sinner. Our outgoing pastor said, I, be, I should be friends with you because you need Jesus. Would you be my friend? Will you be my neighbor? Don't, don't do that. But be friends with sinners. Hang out with them. Don't insulate from them. I always cringe when I hear parents, parents say, I want my kid to come to youth group to be insulated from the world. We want the world to come to us. We want to go to them. We want them to see the joy and the hope that we have, the community, the love, the relationships. True community, friendship, hope, and joy is so contagious. Don't insulate from the world. Go to where they are. Be upfront. Don't be secretive. Steward your area of influence. I love Judy Pendleton, our pediatrician, who opened up a practice, like Jeannie Nation said, so that she could be forthright about her faith in Christ. It's right there on her website. If you're a photographer, if you're an engineer, if you're a teacher, use and steward your influence. If you're a stay-at-home mom, tell your kids, steward the influence that God's given you, and be all out committed to making much of Jesus. Because whatever we do for Jesus echoes in eternity and lasts forever. But whatever we do for ourselves is going to be burned up. Be committed to reaching people for Jesus. And we forget about the freshness and the awesomeness of going from unforgiven to forgiven. And we live oftentimes, and I'm the first one in line, we live mediocre, half-hearted, lackadaisical, non-urgent lives. And we should have urgency in our lives. We should have urgency. And maybe the first thing you need to pray for is, God, make me urgent Help me to have a spiritual commitment of urgency. Secondly and lastly, 
The scriptures give us descriptions of people physical, people's physical ailments, not just to give us descriptions of people's physical ailments. When God tells us about demonic possession, when God tells us about muteness and blindness and deafness and paralysis, he doesn't just want us to know their physical conditions. They are indicative of a spiritual condition that every man, woman, boy, and girl has. We are spiritually sick. So we don't need to forget that we are a modern-day Matthew, ostracized, alienated, separated from the holiness and the presence of God. We are like that paralytic whose sins has relegated us to spiritual separation from God. There is a book that I read years ago with the title, They Like Jesus but not the church. A provocative title. Most people don't have a problem with Jesus, but most people, a lot of people have a problem with the church. And this writer says there's a progression that happens oftentimes in a believer's life. They go from not being a Christian to becoming a Christian. Praise God, right? If you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian. Stop praying about it. Stop deliberating. Stop sitting there in your spiritual pride. Repent of your sins and come to the fullness of joy and taste and see the freedom and the joy that is yours. It's a wonderful thing. The only thing that truly matters. We want people to become Christians. Secondly, what happens? They become part of church life. That's a good thing. And then they become part of the Christian bubble. And then he says, lastly, they become like Jonah. Or they don't love people. And they forget who they once were. And they look disdainfully at other people who are not like them. Different beliefs, different values, different behaviors, different preferences or convictions. And the scandalous truth of the book of Jonah is that God loves the people who are unlovable. And the moral of the story is Jonah is the unlovable one. And God loves Jonah. He writes this, oftentimes Christians, and maybe this is not you, it is me at times, oftentimes Christians get a bizarre, a bizarre sense of enjoyment sitting around with Christian friends talking about how lucky we are that we aren't in the world anymore. We get into a retreat mentality in which we think of the church as a protection from the world social club, which is anything but that. We look disdainfully at individuals who don't know Jesus, forgetting that's where we once were. We become consumed with a myriad of responsibilities in the church, and though they might be honorable and worthy commitments, they do not do anything to point people to Jesus and engage people to put Jesus first. And truth be told, some of us are okay with that. We don't experience a profound burden for the lostness around us like we did when we first became a Christian, and consequently, we don't care for them and we don't pray for them. Hopefully, the Spirit of God has transformed you and me into living more Jesus-like lives, because all those descriptions are unacceptable to the God who gave us His Son, so that we might be forgiven Jesus is telling us through this word, take heart, take courage, your sins are forgiven. 
and he then heals him. The calling of Matthew into, his, into discipleship, what is he doing? He's telling us that we need to understand, regularly remind us that sin is every person's deepest problem and forgiveness is every person's deepest need. With Jesus, forgiveness is a reality. And Jesus knew that forgiveness would mean a bloody cross. And I think when Jesus said, take heart, take courage, your sins are forgiven, he felt the sting of the crucifixion because he knew to say a statement like he did meant that he would have to die. Take courage, take heart. You have no idea the implications and the depths that I'm going to have to go to so that I can actually say your sins are forgiven. He gave us his life. And so if you're a believer, every ounce of your life, every ounce of your being is to be lived in allegiance to the one who gave you his life. Let me pray. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would do His work. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and there is sin in our lives that we need to confess. For some, it's a lackadaisicalness to the things of God. For some, it's unbelief. Spirit, would you move in people's hearts now? The Spirit's job is to convict of righteousness, that there is only one who's righteous, that is Jesus, and that we need to find ourselves in Him. And Spirit, your job is to convict of judgment, that there is a judgment that is soon coming. And the glorious, awesome truth of Christianity is that Christ Jesus took on our judgment. Praise be to you, Father, for your plan of salvation. Praise be to you, Jesus, for purchasing salvation. Praise be to you, Spirit of God, that actually applies and opens up our heart to believe in the salvation of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would see the power and the work of Jesus in our own lives and that it would compel us to live Jesus focused lives because as I say so many times Jesus you really do change everything we pray these things in the name of Christ hey what we want to do